What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the very first episode of The Cinemonograph. I'm your host, George A. Velez. Glad to have you here. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, a monograph is a scholarly essay on a particular aspect of art, or it is a collection of essays in a book or a series of volumes. So think of this podcast as a collection of sorts in terms of things film-related, or you can look at every episode as its own separate monograph on a particular subject. For those of you who grew up in the 90s, Scream is definitely the most iconic horror movie. It just kind of sums up the 90s. It gave us a new killer that immediately kind of went into the zeitgeist. Someone in the in the same vein as Michael Myers or Jason or Chucky, Leatherface and Freddy. These are very special movies. They shouldn't be dismissed as as dumb horror movies. They're there's something more and they talk about a lot of a lot of themes that are very human. So let's get into it. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Oh! You see, you push the laws and you end up dead. Okay, I'll see you in the kitchen with a knife. So the Scream series is the best horror franchise of all time. Actually, I don't I don't think it comes even close. It's actually one of the few film series that doesn't have a terrible installment. In fact, I think all the installments are pretty good movies. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hey, Bozo, these movies aren't that scary. They're too funny to be scary. Also, they're 90s as fuck. Why are these 25-year-olds playing teenagers? Yo, my guy, that mask is goofy, and I'm not going to disagree with that. But what about all the other franchises? There's Halloween, Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw, etc. Now, I love some of those franchises, but let's be honest, it's usually the first one that's the best. Maybe, maybe one of the sequels is good, but honestly, there are only three good horror sequels I can think of as I'm going on this rant. There's The Exorcist 3, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yes, the one where Wes Craven is in the movie, writing a movie that's literally the movie that we're watching, but we can kind of get into that at another time because that can get really confusing. And there's 2018's Halloween Um. I don't think the original Halloween 2 is a very good movie. Facted. If you really look at it, Laurie Strode spends 30 minutes in a bed and only to just not do anything. Um, something that um, Halloween Kills followed very closely. So Scream is not your regular slasher franchise. It's probably the reason everyone has caller ID on their phones. Uh, now it's the standard, but in the 90s, not so much. God, I feel old. It's the best franchise because it's about something other than blood and guts and uh, Courtney Cox's fucked up hairstyles. Seriously, go look at it. It's a great satire on media, the public's relationship with violence, and horror movies themselves. But mostly the Scream series chronicles the trauma of Sidney Prescott, the greatest slasher film protagonist of all time, a compelling protagonist with emotional depth, and has the best character arc in horror cinema. Sorry, Laurie Strode, I love you. Uh, I still think you're a badass though. By the mid-90s, slasher flicks were dead. It got kind of hard to tell Michael Myers and Jason apart. Freddy became Bugs Bunny and there's like this, I forget which Nightmare on Elm Street movie it is. It's He kills somebody on a beach and he's like wearing sunglasses and it, it's just really fucked up and wrong. And when Wes Craven tried to make Freddy scary and meta, people weren't really interested. But Wes Craven's new nightmare slaps, I'm telling you. So 
when Scream came along, written by Kevin Williamson and directed by Slasher Legend and director of Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Wes Craven, the slasher genre was back in full force and launched a bunch of imitators starring um, actors in 90s TV shows that, you know, that were on the WB. So uh, there was I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legends, Valentine, and of course, Halloween Water. Scream, originally titled Scary Movie, was a breath of fresh air. Maybe probably the first instance in a horror movie where the characters saw the same scary movies that the audience grew up watching. And because of that, it's one of the few horror films where the audience and the characters are on the same page. You know, audience and the characters know the rules. And in the film, it's recited to us by Randy, kind of a film bro and a horror movie expert, the audience surrogate. So the opening of Scream is considered one of the greatest openings of all time. It's so good. If it were released as a short film, it would probably be considered the greatest short film of all time. The premise is simple. It's a teenage girl named Casey Becker, played by the biggest name in the cast at the time, Drew Barrymore. She's getting ready to watch a movie and making popcorn, and she gets a call from this stranger. At first, it's playful, right? They flirt and talk about horror movies, and he asks her for her name, and... When she asks why, he says, because I want to know who I'm looking at. From that point on, this man terrorizes her, asking her to answer horror movie trivia, threatening to murder her boyfriend if she gets any answers wrong. Unfortunately, she does, and her boyfriend's disemboweled. That's a really violent scene. The scene ends with the killer breaking into the house and chasing her before murdering her. The opening tells us what we're in for. It's playful, self-referential, funny a little silly and ultimately heartbreaking it's a fun scene before it ends with a teenage girl being murdered as her parents listen on the phone while she dies calling for her mother then we're introduced to our protagonist sydney prescott who's played marvelously by nev campbell she's dealing with the brutal murder of her mother maureen prescott she was murdered the year before and she's got a really sus ass boyfriend named billy played by ski ulrich he climbs through her windows and talking only in movie references and pressuring her to have sex with him uh, today this is a very familiar person called the film bro there's a morally bankrupt tabloid journalist gail weathers played by friends as courtney cox she's writing a book about sydney's mother's murder and how sydney identified the wrong man Cotton Weary, played by Leah Shriver, a man with whom her mother had an affair. So when Casey Becker is murdered, the town of Woodsboro whips up into a frenzy while Sydney becomes the new target. The killer threatens to murder her just as he did her mother. He attempts to murder her in her house and her boyfriend Billy conveniently shows up through the window after the killer leaves. So with all this happening, Sydney goes to school and she's trying to live a normal life and hang out with her friends. Tatum, played by Rose McGowan. Uh, Tatum's insane boyfriend, Stu, played brilliantly by Matthew Lillard. Uh, my man is making some choices in this movie and they all work. Of course, Randy, played by Jim Jamie Kennedy, who we mentioned earlier, and her quote-unquote lovable boyfriend, Billy. But people were running through the hallways, dressing up as Ghostface and slut-shaming her mother, who's had affairs with men in town when she was alive. Meanwhile, people are murdered while Tatum's brother, the goofy and lovable Deputy Dewey, played by David Arquette, and Gail Weathers try to investigate the murders while they flirt with each other. Maureen Prescott is one of the most fascinating characters in the series. We never meet her but she's often referred to and she's kind of this ghost that you know just kind of 
haunts the whole series. Her murder is technically the first murder in the franchise. Sydney grieves her mother while denying her mother's frequent infidelities. And she's trying to, you know, she's trying to deny that and wrestle with that. Characters frequently talk about how Sydney has changed because of her trauma. Even Billy, who's frustrated with how Sydney has coped with this trauma and he tells her to move on, you know, get over it. <laughs> oh God, Billy's the worst. As the film progresses, Sydney finds it more difficult to cope with her mother's death and, you know, with this, you know, ghost face running around and goes to a party at Stu's house to try to take her mind off things. Ghostface, the series franchise killer is terrifying. He's on the Mount Rushmore of slasher killers, but he's nowhere near as scary as the other people in this film. The gravity of the murders doesn't matter to everyone else. They compare the murders to the horror films that they've seen rather than acknowledge the horror of the killings themselves. When a teenage girl is brutally murdered, everyone is more excited about leaving school and having a party. And when the students hear their principal is murdered, they rush to the crime scene so they could see his body. And, you know, they're, they're, you know the way they talk about it in the movie is like they're going to go to another party. It's really fucked up. The media is more occupied with headlines and books rather than real journalism. When everyone leaves, the killer murders Billy and chases Sydney all around the property. It's, it's an awesome scene. feels like it goes on like forever in like the best way. He murders Tatum, Gail's cameraman, and stabs Dewey in the back. This will not be the last time this happens before Billy reveals that he's alive and he and Stu are both ghost face and they're using horror movies as pointers for their psychotic spree. Even worse, they murdered her mother and framed Cotton Weary. When Sydney asks them why, Stu refuses to give a motive, while Billy reveals that he murdered Maureen because she had an affair with his father, causing his mother to leave town. They plan to frame Sydney's dad for the murders. Sydney fights for her life, killing Billy and Stu. Unlike Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, or whoever else. Ghostface is human. He falls and he trips and people beat the shit out of him. Like, they really rock his shit. And we're watching Scream from the safety of home and the comfort of knowing it's fiction. But, you know, Billy, Stu, and the other privileged white people of the small town of Woodsboro see real-life murder as entertainment rather than a tragic event that causes trauma to the victim's loved ones. And that's the true horror of Scream. There aren't many good horror sequels. Like I said, I can only name three. Wait, four. I just remembered that I liked The Conjuring 2. Usually the filmmakers take the script of the first film and they play Mad Libs. And they make the sequel bloodier and gorier and underwrite the characters. And we, the audience, look at the screen and just say, well, I hope Jason murders all these horny camp counselors again. They never measure up to the original and they inevitably run the franchise into the ground. But Scream 2 is the Godfather part two of horror sequels. That is a very strange sentence, but I truly believe this. It's just as good as the original. Maybe even better. Scream 2 went into production when the first one was in theaters. It has its goofiness. There's a scene where Jerry O'Connell sings in a cafeteria that gives me secondhand embarrassment, but it improves on what makes the original so great. 
In this movie, the formula is officially established. We open with two murders. It's a very misguided scene where two black characters criticize white horror movies while playing into racial stereotypes only to be brutally murdered. Yeah. Ghostface calls his victims. They're suspense, murder. Sydney throws hands at Gail Weathers again. Seriously, Sydney can fuck people up. And the film ends with the identity of Ghostface revealed, explaining to Sydney the motive for the murders. Most importantly, though, the film further explores the trauma of Sydney Prescott, a couple, Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett, before she was Smith, was murdered at the premiere of a film called Stab film based on the events of the first film and a book by Gail Weathers. As mentioned earlier, the scene is misguided, but it is pretty horrifying considering the two people are murdered in the middle of a crowded movie theater and no one seems to notice or take it seriously. Sydney and the gang are trying to move on from the events of the last film. She's a drama major in college dealing with people, prank calling her, talking like ghost face and not to mention the release of the movie. She takes all this in stride until she finds out there is a copycat Ghostface killer. The victims have similar names as the victims in the first film. Gail Weathers is back on the scene trying to find another scoop. She brings along Cotton Weary looking to use the media to clean up his public image and get famous after being exonerated for Maureen's murder. Dewey Riley comes to Windsor College to catch the killer and protect Sydney. He's also pissed at Gail for portraying him as incompetent in her book. And of course, Randy is doing Randy shit, reciting the rules of horror sequels. Sydney even has a new boyfriend, Derek, played by Jerry O'Connell, who's madly in love with her and is studying to be a doctor. He seems a little too good to be true. From that point on, Sydney gets phone calls from the killer and her friends are murdered. Randy's death and her best friend Hallie's, played by uh, Lise Neal, their deaths are particular gut punches. As the bodies pile up, Sydney's post-traumatic stress disorder worsens. She feels responsible for the deaths of anyone close to her. After Derek is attacked by Ghostface, she can't decide if she should leave him because being close to her has caused him harm or if she thinks he's the killer. Meanwhile, Cotton Weary is aggressively and obsessively pressuring Sydney into appearing on Diane Sawyer with him. After a while, after dealing with all, all this, Sydney can barely have a conversation without showing physical discomfort or being on the verge of tears. Sydney is in a Greek play, Agamemnon. She plays Cassandra, a cursed woman. During her rehearsal, she sees Ghostface when the other actors wear cloaks similar to him and wield daggers. She breaks down, leaving the audience to wonder whether Ghostface was on stage with her or a figment of her imagination caused by PTSD. The film rushes towards a climax, beginning with an exciting chase sequence where Ghostface murders the cops, protecting Sydney and Hallie, and he steals a car and he crashes it. And Sydney and Hallie have to climb over an unconscious Ghostface to escape. Hallie is murdered, Sydney runs away, and she ends up in the theater where she had a breakdown. Ghostface follows her and unmasks, and it's Mickey, played brilliantly by Timothy Oliphant. He's Sydney's film bro friend who's been documenting the killings on his camcorder. Mickey wants to be famous. He's going to blame movies for his insanity, and he implies that he aspires to be O.J. Simpson. He says, these days, it's all about the trial. Keep in mind, it's 1997. He preys on Sydney's trust issues and murders Derek. 
Then he reveals his real partner, Mrs. Loomis, played by Laurie Metcalf, Billy's mother. She's paid Mickey's tuition to get close to Sydney to avenge her son's death. She shoots Mickey and attempts to murder Sydney while Sydney uses the stage effects to fight Mrs. Loomis, using her art form to battle her demons. And Cotton stumbles onto the scene after finding a wounded Dewey gun in hand. Mrs. Loomis attempts to convince him to kill Sydney. He shoots Mrs. Loomis and Sydney shoots her in the head and everyone's happy. <laughs> the film wraps up with Gale riding in the ambulance with Dewey. Cotton's now a celebrity. He's a hero instead of a convict. And the last shot is a helicopter shot revealing Sydney walking through the campus, swallowed by her surroundings, her future unknown. Hollywood has profited off of Sydney's trauma. Her friends have been injured or murdered. Another one of her friends conspired to kill her, leaving Sydney a woman cursed, alone, with no one to trust. And that is the true horror of Scream 2. And here we are, everyone. Scream 3. Traditionally, the third movie is every franchise's weakest entry. The one everyone hates. Return of the Jedi, Godfather Part 3. I actually liked The Godfather Part 3. I wrote about it. I suggest you read it. It's pretty good. And The Dark Knight Rises, by consensus, people feel they're letdowns. Scream 3, unfortunately, followed tradition. It made the least amount at the box office with mixed reviews. Now, I agree. This one isn't as good as the first two. I also think it's pretty damn good. Now, if you know anything specifically about horror trilogies, you'll know they're mostly straight-to-DVD sequels to a beloved horror film. In case you didn't know, one of the greatest horror movies of all time, The Lost Boys, has two direct-to-DVD sequels. But Scream 3 attempts to do something ambitious, build on the first two installments, and tell a complete narrative to close the book on a franchise. There is a fourth installment, but you can make the argument that film functions more as an epilogue rather than a new chapter. Scream 3 doesn't do anything to mess with the formula, even giving Gail Weathers another questionable haircut. Seriously, it's like they hate her. Horror movies influence Billy and Stu to go on a killing spree in Woodsboro. Mickey planned to blame horror movies for his killing spree in Windsor College. Now it's only appropriate Ghostface goes on a killing spree in the birthplace of horror movies. Hollywood. This time, Ghostface is killing the cast of Stab 3. We know the Hollywood and Scream 3 very well, a place where men in power are predators, creating trauma that's passed down to the next generation. Since the events of Scream 2, Cotton Weary has turned himself into a household name. He's the host of the number one daytime talk show, 100% Cotton, which I have to admit is a pretty awesome name for a talk show. Cotton and his girlfriend are murdered by Ghostface after refusing to reveal Sydney's location. Ghostface leaves a calling card, photos of a young Maureen Prescott. Gail is brought in to assist in the investigation by cinema-loving hot cop, Detective Kincaid, played by Patrick Dempsey. Detective McDreamy. Gail recruits ex-boyfriend Dewey, now a technical advisor for the third stab film, and in an over-familiar relationship with Jennifer Jolie, the actress playing Gail Weathers in the stab films. She's played by Parker Posey, and Parker Posey all like in all her performances it fucking kills it ghostface kills off cast members leaving his calling card and detective kincaid is demanding that dewey discloses sydney's location sydney now a recluse plagued with nightmares of ghostface and her dead mother works from home as a crisis counselor her father compares her to a ghost and her response to that is psychos can't kill what they can't find 
It's not until Ghostface calls her, she leaves for Hollywood and assists in the investigation. Sydney and the gang watch a tape Randy recorded before he died. In this tape, Randy recites a few new rules for the concluding chapter of a trilogy. The killer is invincible. The past will haunt you, and anyone, including the main character, can die. A rule that was established when Cotton Weary was first murdered in the opening scene. There's a sequence where Sydney stumbles on the set of Stab 3. All, all the sets are recreations of locations in the first Scream film. You know, if you watch Scream 1, and you'll be able to recognize this very easily. And this creates a nightmarish labyrinth of Sydney's trauma. She sees Stu's house where people were murdered and... She found Tatum's body and people were terrorized. She sees her house in Woodsboro where her bedroom is recreated and remembers conversations she had with Billy and you can see how much she's changed since we met her. She's no longer the teenage girl trying to figure it out. She's mentally scarred, robbed of youth, with no one to keep her company but ghosts. Then she stumbles on the set of her parents' room where the crime scene of Maureen's death is recreated in gruesome detail, and Ghostface appears speaking in Maureen's voice with a voice changer that can mimic anyone's voice, and he attempts to kill her. In this sequence, shots from Sydney's first encounter with Ghostface are recreated, specifically the shot where she's you know, running up the stairs into her bedroom. She manages to escape, but she breaks down because she's heard her mother's voice, and she's relived the most traumatic moments of her life. It's a sequence that is thrilling and terrifying and heartbreaking as we watch her fall apart. And in particular, this scene is, is shows the talent that Nev Campbell is. And, you know, she, you know, watching her perform, this is, is actually a very, very heartbreaking thing to see. So the climax takes place at a birthday party for Stab 3 director Roman Bridger, played by Scott Foley. And this is at the mansion of famous producer of the Stab series, John Milton, played by, you know, sci-fi and horror favorite Lance Henriksen. The characters frequently talk about a secret room where John Milton hosted wild parties back in the day. The pictures Ghostface has been leaving behind are her headshots. Maureen attended one of these parties where producers preyed on women for sex in exchange for film roles. And shortly after that, she moved back to Woodsboro. So the side characters are murdered before Dewey and Gale are captured and Ghostface uses them as bait to lure Sydney to the mansion. Once she arrives at the mansion, Ghostface reveals himself in the secret screening room of the mansion. The killer is Roman, another film bro. What a surprise. This is the first scene where Sydney and Roman meet, but their relationship is defined by one of the most important characters of the series. Their mother is Maureen Prescott. At the party young Maureen attended, she was raped by John Milton and other producers. Maureen got pregnant, had Roman, gave him away for adoption, and moved back to Woodsboro. Roman found her years later, but she rejected him. Roman then organized her murder, revealing to Billy Loomis his father's affair with Maureen and the cause of his mother leaving Woodsboro. After murdering Maureen, Billy and Stu went in their own direction and murdered their classmates. Roman was hurt. Maureen shut him out and raised Sydney. He longed for Sydney's life. He plans to murder John Milton and frame Sydney. Milton's throat is slit by Roman. Fight ensues and Sydney stabs Roman in the chest. There's a beautiful moment where he holds her hand as he dies. Two siblings who never got to know each other because of the trauma of their mother caused by a horrific sexual assault. 
John Milton's assault traumatized Maureen, causing her to cope with her trauma through promiscuity, something the town of Woodsboro shamed her for, something that two teenage boys killed her for. Meanwhile, John Milton profited off movies based on her trauma and death, a concept that doesn't sound far-fetched in these times. Scream 3 puts the first two films in a new light, making the movies not only a genre exercise, but an exploration of survival and coping with trauma. We get a happy ending. Dewey doesn't get stabbed in the back and gets the bad guy. Dewey proposes to Gail as they visit Sydney. Now a little more at peace with herself, she's found the root of her mother's trauma, the root of her unknown half-brother's trauma, and finally, the root of her trauma. The final image is Sydney's door slowly opening, and she stares at it before leaving the frame to watch a film with her friends and her new support system. A cryptic ending that could mean a ghost has left the house, Sydney finally feels at peace, or Sydney's trauma will never fully leave her. It is an ending that feels both unsettling and peaceful. Or it could mean the door is left open for a sequel, which brings us to Scream 4. If you threw a rock in the mid to late 2000s, chances are you'd hit a horror remake. After the remake of The Sexist Chainsaw Massacre, Hollywood remade every classic slasher movie they could think of. Every time one come out, they say, this isn't a remake, it's a reimagining. Whatever the fuck that means. These remakes usually rehashed original movies with an obscene amount of gore. I can't even think of many movies that are more violent than the Hills of Eyes remake. This was one of the more popular trends in horror for a decade, and it was one that I personally fucking hated, until Scream 4 was released. So 10 years after the last film, the Stab series has now reached its seventh installment. And just like the previous Scream movies, there are rules for horror remakes. Charlie, played by Rory Culkin, this film's Randy Surrogate, explains to us that remakes are more violent, and the unexpected is the new cliche. Basically, there are no rules. Sydney is back in Woodsboro promoting a book out of darkness about conquering her trauma and refusing to consider herself a victim. But as we know, Sydney can never have nice things because another girl's face comes out of the woodwork and murders two more teenagers. Deputy Dewey, now the sheriff, is on the case. And his wife, Gail Weathers, struggles to write, bored of living a quiet life in Woodsboro. She's also jealous of Sydney's newfound success and very mistrusting of Dewey's deputy, Judy Hicks, played by Marley Shelton, who bakes him lemon squares every day. I'd also like to point out, this is the first time Gail Weathers does not have a horrendous hairstyle. It took you 15 years, but you did it. Congratulations. Sydney stays with her aunt and niece, Jill, played by Emma Roberts, the new Sydney. She's going to high school with her friends, Olivia, played by Marielle Jaffe, and horror aficionado, Kirby, played by Hayden Penetier. Her sus boyfriend, Trevor, played by... Nico Tortorella stalks her after she left him when he cheated on her. She's got nerdy film bro friends, and her family's also recovering from all the things that have happened over the years. Jill and her friends refer to Sydney as the Grim Reaper or the Angel of Death because people always die when she's around. When Jill and her friends start getting stalked, Sydney is reminded of her past and becomes Jill's support system. Sheriff Dewey puts Jill under protection. The cops parked outside looking for a suspicious activity. Ghostface quickly dispatches them and heads to Olivia's house next door to Jill. Ghostface calls Jill and Kirby, forcing them to watch him brutally slaughter Olivia. When Sydney's alerted of this, she darts into Olivia's house ready to throw hands at Ghostface like, with no weapon or anything. Sydney 
definitely took some martial arts classes because she Bruce Lee kicks the shit out of him. This scene is important for two reasons. She's definitely prepared for this over the years and she's no longer a victim. She attempts to save Olivia rather than stand by. And this is a great demonstration of Sydney's evolution from victim to fighter. From there, Sydney, Dewey, and Gail investigate. Gail is particularly invigorated, having found her purpose again. She teams up with the film bros for advice on remakes, where they explain the original's third act ended with a party, and the characters should expect the same in the remake. Ghostface terrorizes Sydney and murders her aunt. She races to Kirby's house when Jill's friends have been murdered, and we find out Ghostface's identity when he terrorizes Kirby with horror trivia. She's the horror aficionado, so she's great at it, and... Honestly, this is the first instance a character knows more about horror trivia than Ghostface. So, I mean, I'm, I'm one for semantics. The question is, um, which is the film that started the slasher craze? And Kirby says Psycho, which is the correct answer. And he says it's Peeping Tom. Um, and Peeping Tom wasn't popular. And I believe it was banned after it came out. It's a great movie directed by Michael Powell. Um, Ghostface says it's because it's the first movie with the killer's POV, but um, which is true, but technically it did not start the slasher craze. So she's stabbed by Charlie. Look, another film, bro. Angry that she never returned his advances. This guy sucks. Not long after Sydney arrives at the house to rescue the teenager, she's stabbed by Charlie's partner, Jill. Jill, her niece. They plan to frame Jill's boyfriend. Charlie wants to be with his secret girlfriend, Jill. This doesn't really end too well for him when she stabs him to death to set him up as Trevor's accomplice and herself as the sole survivor. Jill wants fame, specifically Sydney's fame. In her traditional scream villain monologue, she scoffs at the idea of working and going to school and plans to kill Sydney to take her place in the public eye. Like, you know, just some real suburban white privilege shit. Sydney passes out from her wounds and Jill mutilates herself before like positioning her body next to Sydney's, mirroring Sydney's body as she bleeds out. As she's taken out on a stretcher, ready for her close-up, as the press feverishly photograph her. A moment that recalls Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard descending a staircase in true bliss and madness. Jill and Sydney are both hospitalized and Jill tries to kill Sydney once and for all. All the main characters show up to help Sydney, and Sydney kills Jill. Sydney lies down on the floor, her body mirroring Jill's, recalling the scene from earlier. She looks at her lifeless niece and says, I don't know about you, but I feel a whole lot better. So after 15 years of trauma, Sydney Prescott no longer runs from her demons, but fights them head on. And to paraphrase the final line of Scream 4, Sydney Prescott of Woodsboro. A girl who's lifted all of our spirits, an American hero, right out of the movies. I want to mention Nev Campbell. Sidney Prescott is her most famous role. While she hasn't had many parts that have reached the same levels of popularity, she's one of a handful of actors that has given legitimacy to a genre that's been written off as immature and silly. She's an incredible actor and plays Sidney as a person with complexities, wrestling with real human emotions rather than the final girl horror trope. In every movie, Campbell adds a new layer to Sydney, showcasing her range as an actor. Shout out to Nev Campbell for showing the world that horror on screen can have the gravity of real life. That's the first episode of The Cinemonograph, everyone. Thank you so much for stopping by. This was a great episode to do. Um, please subscribe, come back next time. Tell your friends who love movies, tell your friends who love Scream. Thank you for coming. 
and I'll see you next time. This has been The Cinematograph. <laughs> <laughs>